2 uh, Samuel 21, I want us to look at the first 14 verses of the chapter tonight, beginning at verse number 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement? that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them. Between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armani, and Mephibosheth. This is a different Mephibosheth, by the way. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beast of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his sons Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square at Bet-Shean where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines killed Saul at Golboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. We've now entered the section of 2 Samuel known as the epilogue. It's important that we realize the priority of this section in that it is not chronology but themes. 
The information that the author arranges for us here is for the purpose of presenting a summary of the important perspectives of the kingdom of David and the kingdom of God. And in so doing, he he doesn't arrange it chronologically as much as he does thematically. So, So the epilogue here from chapter 21 all the way through the end of chapter 24 is a summary of David's reign that's presented to us before David's death. In fact, we don't actually see how David dies until you come to the first two chapters of First Kings, and that is for you to do after we conclude chapter 24. Now, our text is one of the most difficult in the Bible, in my opinion. It's not so much difficult to read or comprehend as it is difficult to hear and accept. It's not a pretty picture as we read. It confronts us with difficult truths and it challenges us with difficult questions. As John Woodhouse puts it, it is an account of immense personal suffering, unimaginable grief, and what feels like intolerable unfairness. I don't have to convince you that we live in a cruel and harsh world. Just this week, I was having a conversation with someone who commented based upon their line of work that as much as we see the wickedness of this world before us, the truth is is that it's much worse than we could ever truly imagine. The depravity of sin is so deep and incomprehensible in so many different areas that the media could never really detail for us on the nightly news. But that to the side, we still come face to face every day with the cruelties of violence, the atrocities of abuse and trafficking, and of course the overall general suffering of life. But perhaps for us tonight, the greatest challenge is at times we struggle to reconcile in our minds just how it is that God in His sovereignty can allow such things to happen. And I'll be the first to admit that the answers are not simple. And most often, they're never known. But when we study the Bible, we must come face to face with uncomfortable truths. Uncomfortable truths about God's providential allowing of suffering. Uncomfortable truths like God's holy wrath and judgment upon people and nations. But yet we also come face to face with a different truth, another truth, a truth that God is perfectly and righteously good. That, that even in sufferings and tragedies and difficulties that we have a struggle, a hard time making sense of, we, we have to acknowledge the biblical truth that God is perfectly and righteously good. The big thing, however, is that His goodness is not necessarily determined by the things that you and I find cozy and comfortable. His goodness is based upon His righteous character. And that's why it can be troubling at times when we see things unfolding before us like we do in this particular 
section of David's life when we think, why? For what purpose? What is God allowing here to happen? And I think it helps us to come face-to-face with those realities. It helps us to come to a text like this that that is a little challenging to hear. And we do so because it's our conviction that all of God's Word is inspired, of course, and that all of God's Word is profitable for us. So so we're not going to skip the first 14 verses of chapter 21 and go on on into the wars with the Philistines and so on and so forth. We we, we have to address it because it's our conviction to address it. We're We're not going to bypass the difficult passages of the Bible. We benefit from all of it, and we benefit from this passage tonight. Primarily, as Paul said to Timothy, that all of God's word makes us wise about the gospel, wise unto salvation, that every passage of Scripture, every story in the biblical narratives, every book of the Bible points us to Jesus, and we can step away from it even when we have a hard time making sense of it with greater dependence on Christ. I didn't outline the sermon tonight or the text. Some passages don't need to be outlined. They just need to be preached and preached with emphasis on the main point of the passage. So I'm going to carefully walk through this. And at the end, if it has not yet become clear to you, I'll point out to you the main point from my observation that I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see from this part of David's epilogue, okay? So let's just, let's just walk through the text, beginning at verse 1. And the first thing that we're confronted with here is the problem of human suffering. At some point during David's reign, and most scholars would tell us that due to some chronology of events that are mentioned here, this had to at least been after the events of 2 Samuel chapter 9, and that's just for you to, to, to look up at you, uh, on your own as you continue to study this out. But at some point during David's reign, a three-year famine took place. Verse 1 says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after Year. The, the, the language here, year after year, it just, it just it kept getting worse, all right? This was not just a famine for a couple of months and then everything up better and then a couple of no, no, It was just like year after year. It just kept getting worse. It's, it, it's what we call a, a, a natural disaster, right? Like wildfires and floods and earthquakes and famines. These things can grip parts of the world. And we can't stop these things from happening. They happen under the overruling providence of God. Of course, we can try to do things as a society, as a culture, as a world to to mitigate the impacts of these things upon our lives and all of that. It's, it's, It's not a night to discuss climate control and all of those sort of things. But at the bottom line is we can do everything in our power to mitigate it, but we'll never be able to stop it. These things happen because God providentially allows them to happen. He overrules in terms of our world. And that's why we see David doing a good thing in verse 1. Look at it. He's seeking the face of God. He and his kingdom are deeply suffering. They are suffering of starvation. They have no food. Food. People are hungry, perhaps even dying. And what does David do? He does the right thing. 
He seeks God, not only for relief, but for reasons as to why he has allowed this to happen. I think it's important for us to understand that the reason for any particular tragedy in your life and in our world may not be something God ever wills to let us know. Now, David is seeking that answer, but God doesn't always will to give us a... Why did he allow 9-11? Well, he's, he's never going to let us know that on this side of heaven. And so on and so forth, right? It's like Job. When you look at the life of Job, we are reminded that it is possible to trust that God has his reasons without us knowing what those reasons are. We knew because the Word of God told us, but Job never did. He just had to learn to trust God. So just because we go to God and ask Him to tell us why is this tragedy taking place doesn't obligate Him to give us an answer. However, on this occasion, God tells David. God informs David as to the reason of the famine. We see it again at the second part of verse 1. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So there it is. The reason for this famine is due to something Saul done in innocently killing a large number of Gibeonites. And this for us is another challenge we see from this text. Because what we're understanding here is that a whole nation in this particular season, a whole nation of people is now suffering as a result of someone's sin. You could say it like this. All of Israel is under the wrath of God because of one man's rebellion. Because of Saul's rebellion. Now, now quickly, who, who are the Gibeonites? Well, the Gibeonites were survivors from the indigenous Canaanite people who were in the land of promise before God gave the land to Israel. Uh, they were people, not the Gibeonites rather, but the Canaanites were people who had been displaced when God gave the land of promise to Israel. But we find something a little different about the Gibeonites in that in Joshua chapter 9, the people of Israel under Joshua's command uh, made a promise invoking the name of God uh, to make peace with the Gibeonites and to spare them. Now, that whole story in and of itself is one that you'll have to study on your own. It's filled with deception and, uh, and trickery. You might even say the Gibeonites were uh, very wise in their dealings with Joshua and the children of Israel. Be that as it may, the end result was the Gibeonites were allowed to live safely as a foreign people uh, in the land of promise. And that was a vow that was made to them, safety. And it was made a vow in the name of God. But, of course, when Saul becomes king, he completely disregards that oath 
that had been sworn to the Gibeonites, and he killed a large number of them. Verse 2 reminds us of that. Look at it. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down. And it seems that he did so here in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. That even though a vow had been made, a promise had been made to allow them to stay, Saul was so zealous in his national identity that he disregarded it altogether and attempted to wipe them out. So what we have here is that the underlining cause of this famine was a broken covenant which incurred the wrath of God. Now here's a side note, but a very important one, and that is God takes seriously the promises that we make to him. His people are people of truth. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Be people who keep your word to one another, but especially to Almighty God. Ecclesiastes tells us, In Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And Saul failed to acknowledge the truth that our promises to God are to be taken very seriously. So we come to verse 3, and David decides to reach out to the Gibeonites. Now, I want to say that this is where David appears to have made his fundamental mistake in this episode. He does the right thing in the beginning of verse 1 by seeking the face of God about the famine. But when God tells him the reason, you'll notice something that's missing. And that is he does not seek the face of God about what he should do. He seeks the face of God about why this is happening. And when he finds out why it is happening, he doesn't ask God what he should do about it. He takes it upon himself to resolve the issue without any guidance from God. And I think that is very important to our understanding of the nuances of this passage. Because what David is going to do for them by adhering to the request of the Gibeonites was not something that the Lord told him to do. Look at it in verse 3. David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? In other words, how can I make right the wrong that has been done to you by Saul? How can we restore peace and bring you back underneath the blessing of God. And I think that's very, very important here because you remember back in Genesis chapter 12 when God made this covenant with Abraham. He said, look, I'm going to bless your seed and multiply it. And whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. So so what David is saying, all right, how can we get you 
back to the place where the heritage of the Lord, where the, the, the possession of the Lord is also something that you're blessing so that God can bless you. In other words, he wants peace. He wants reconciliation. Verse chapter 3 tells us clearly that he wants to make atonement. He wants to make atonement. How shall I make atonement? Well, here's what the Gibeonites said. Look at verse 4. They said to him, you know, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us, Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. So to them, uh, this was not an issue of monetary compensation, all right? Uh, Years and years of mistreatment, you ought to uh, pay us for that. That, That's not the issue here. We, We don't want your silver. We don't want your gold. Neither, he says here, neither... Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. All right. Well, you can't read that without putting tone and emphasis where the tone and emphasis belongs. Because here's how they're saying it. All right. This is not an issue of silver or gold. We don't want any money. Neither is it for us to put anybody to death in Israel. You see, they're saying it without saying it. We're not allowed to put anybody to death. But, you know, you can. You're the king. And so David's like, would you just say it? Would you just come out and say it? with Verse 4, and he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? Just say it. Tell me what you want me to do. Fine. We'll tell you. Verse 5. The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us. They don't even say his name, do they? Well, we understand who it is. It's Saul. The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons. Now, obviously, some time has gone by a little bit here. He's talking about male descendants in general, not literal sons of first generation. He's saying, let seven male descendants of Saul be given to us that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah, his hometown, as the chosen of the Lord. So there you have it. The man who wanted and tried to destroy us, we want seven of his sons executed, and we want them executed in his hometown before the Lord. And what does David do? And the king said, I'll give them. That's important to point out once again that David does not seek the face of God about whether or not he should actually do what they're asking. He just just agrees to it. So, So the proposal here does not come from the Lord. It comes from the Gibeonites. Nor does the scripture indicate that David's agreement to the request was an act of obedience to God. It just happens. And the difficulty for us in situations like this, as we mentioned a moment ago, is that God providentially allowed it to happen, okay? It happens, and God allows it to happen. David wanted to make atonement, and this is what he thinks will make atonement. 
It's not what God said would make atonement. Well, the next scene is the horrific part of it. And it's David carrying out this agreement by publicly executing seven male descendants of Saul. Look at it in verse 7. The king spared Mephibosheth. Okay, this is Jonathan's son. And he does so because of the oath that was made to the Lord between David and Jonathan. And then verse 8 says that the king took the two sons of Rispa, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul. She was one of Saul's concubines. Uh, she had two sons, Armani and Mephibosheth. Again, it's a different Mephibosheth. And then it mentions five other sons, sons of Merib, although the names of these sons aren't mentioned like we have Armani and Mephibosheth. And verse 9 says that the king, David, gave these seven descendants, these seven male descendants into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. You know, I read this, and I'm thinking, how did David even do it? I mean, he just, did he just randomly walk up to Rispa's house one day and, I need Armani. Where's, where's Mephibosheth? They... They've got to come with me. Say your goodbyes. You're not going to see them again. Was there any explanation of all? Was it a surprise attack? Nothing's recorded about how he gathered them and turned them over to the Gibeonites. But it had to be tragic. Can you imagine moms? And we don't know the precise age of these boys at this time. But can you imagine, Mom, somebody coming and knocking on your door tonight, taking your sons to wake up the next morning to find out they've been executed? The whole thing's terrible. It's brutal. It's horrific. And the author, from a historical vantage point, tells us where it happened. It happened on a mountain before the Lord. He tells us how it happened. They were hung. And he tells us when it happened first days of harvest, around the barley harvest feast, which would have been somewhere around the first of April. And to make the scene worse, we're given now information about how it affected Rizpah, the mom of two of the sons. Verse 10, look at it. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth, spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. So again, this happened in, in April, the beginning of barley harvest. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. You've got to just follow the sequence. The autumn rains would come around October or November. So when you follow this timeline of what Rispa is doing, at the very least for six months, for six months, this mother constantly watched over the decaying bodies of her sons as well as the other five, whether it be cousins, nephews, however they fell in the line of male descendants for at least six months, the beginning of barley harvest until the rains came in October and November, she's out there constantly, constantly watching over these bodies. And the Bible says that she protected the bodies night and day. She protected them from predators. From, from the birds of the air, from the, from the beast of the field, from coming in and tearing these bodies apart. She, she just constantly, 24 hours a day, gave herself to protecting them. She used sackcloth for rest and shade. The 
text seems to indicate that she would not leave the bodies ever to themselves. She was there around the clock. Six months of this. It's both sad and remarkable, to be honest. And here's how it ends. David hears about Rizpah's actions, and he's, he's moved by it. And this is where we struggle with David's emotions, don't we? You just went out and did this, and now you just... Does he somehow think that what he's fixing to do is going to somehow help his conscience out a little bit? I don't know. Look at it, verse 11. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ahi, the concubine of Saul, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shan. Now, remember, we're not going to revisit that story. This is where Saul and his, his sons, Jonathan, they were impaled on the city walls of Beth Shean. Those of you who have been to Israel with us, you've been to Beth Shean. You've seen that hillside around those walls where the bodies of Saul, Jonathan, and, and, and Saul's sons would have been impaled there. So he goes and he gets those bodies and where the Philistines had hung them and on the day that the Philistines killed Saul at Goboa. Verse 13, and he brought up from there the bones of Saul, the bones of his son Jonathan. They gathered also the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried them. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. So we have a scene among all of this of compassion and dignity. David's moved by what Rispa has been doing for six months. And he decides that it is right to give Saul and his descendants a proper burial. Now, that in and of itself is difficult to see, at least from my perspective, within the circumstance of the horrific violence that was carried out. And I think that's one of the reasons why this whole story troubles us the way that it does. But regardless... After it was all brought to a conclusion, verse 14 tells us that God responds to the pleas for food by restoring the land from their season of famine. It's complicated. But we have to ask ourselves, what does God want us to know? Remember, Romans and Corinthians both tells us that the things that we see aforementioned are for our learning. They're for our understanding that through patience and hope we will endure. So, so what is it here? What's, what's the main point of the story? What does the author give us in these snapshots of David's kingdom in this epilogue? Well, there are several things we could note in terms of implications, such as the reality of human suffering whether it be from the starvation of the famine, suffering, or the massacre of the innocent people by King Saul, suffering, and then, of course, the public execution of his descendants. And especially with Rispa and those individual people, their families, it's, it's, it's suffering. There's, there's just a, a lot of suffering here in David's kingdom. A lot of pain. A lot of sadness. All of which is ultimately the consequence of sin. And in this particular story, it's the consequence of Saul's sin. 
We live right now, as you know, in a broken world. That just like David's kingdom is filled with suffering and pain of deep magnitude. And just how sin and suffering are specifically connected can be complicated to unravel at times. Yet we cannot ignore the reality that from this passage, God's holy wrath and righteous judgment was the result of sin. The whole nation is dealing with suffering because of sin. But here's the main point of the story, all right? I know you want me to just get to it. Here it is, all right? And I want to read it to you as I wrote it. The main point of the story is the inadequacy of King David to atone God's wrath. The inadequacy of King David to atone God's wrath. David's attempt to deal with Saul's sins and its consequences were horrific. Remember, never does the text indicate that what David chose to do was God's requirement. Never. He sought the advice of the Gibeonites instead of God. And he granted their request without seeking God's desire. He took it upon himself to atone for their sins. Because in his opinion, the execution of Saul's male descendants, as requested by the Gibeonites, would be acceptable by God. Two, two things about this. Deuteronomy 24, 16 Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So by account of the law, it seems here that David would have been breaking the law of God in doing what he did. Which, again, in my opinion, I'd be open to any suggestion that you have. But in my opinion, the death of Saul's descendants, they were not God's idea. They were David's idea. It's a subtle reminder, isn't it? That you and I cannot come up with our own ways to satisfy God's wrath. God's way of dealing with sin is not human sacrifice. It's substitutionary sacrifice. That's the whole point of the Old Testament sacrificial system, to provide a substitute for our sin as we humbly repent and seek God. So we we come back to the main point. King David could not adequately deal with the problem of God's wrath. He could not sufficiently atone for his or anyone else's sin for that matter. And so once again in our studies of David, we have to turn to the one who has fully and adequately made atonement for God's wrath. Jesus Christ. He did what David could not do. He is the king who is able to save us from the wrath of God. He is the king who righteously makes atonement for all sin. And as is the case with many of these Old Testament narratives, 
this text exist that we may clearly hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may not provide an answer as to all the nuances of it. And we may even scratch our heads as to why God still chose to give them food back if it went against his desire for satisfaction. But regardless, it causes us to look nowhere else but Jesus, who perfectly makes atonement for sin, who became the substitute by taking our place and rose again so that we may be given freedom in Christ, reconciliation with God. That is, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. We're not saved by our ingenuities. We're not saved by our righteousness. We're not saved by our ideas. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we are saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the atonement. Remember what David asked? How shall I make atonement for you? You can't. There's only one who can make atonement for our sins. And he has made that atonement. And it will be applied to your life if you will by faith repent of your sins and come to Jesus. Resting solely upon him and him alone. All of this takes us back to Christ. That's why we have the narrative of David. Not to be like David. But to see Jesus. There's an old hymn in the 1940s. Wounded for me, you know it? Wounded for me, the next stanza, dying for me, the third stanza, risen for me, the fourth stanza, coming for me. That's the gospel, isn't it? We should never take lightly the cost at which we have been saved from God's wrath. Wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross, he was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions, and now I am free. All because Jesus was wounded for me. He did what David could never do. So it is to him that we go in faith. Let's stand together tonight for prayer.